Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. This war needs to be ended this year with Ukrainian victory. And because this war is one of the major disruption of the global economic stability, it's also for the sake of people in Canada, in U.S., in Europe and other countries that Ukraine won the war. Yulia Kovalev, the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to Canada on this program, first week of uh 2023, talking about Ukraine winning the war, and that's been the objective, and it certainly is the objective of the people in Ukraine. They have every intention of winning the war. And we, uh, when we spoke with General Rick Hillier, the former chief of defense staff for this country, was it last weekend? I think it was last weekend. And uh, General Hillier said, look, uh, when it comes to the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian military, they're the second largest in Europe, right after the Russians. So they have every uh, opportunity, if they get the weapons they require, to uh, push the Russians back to the to the border that they, well, back to the pre-2014 border, not just last February 24th, but back to 2014. So a lot of changes have been taking place. As you know, over the last week, Ukraine is now going to be getting the Leopard 2 battle tanks, several, I think 14 from Germany, but Germany's also signed off on other countries that bought the Leopards from them to transfer them to Ukraine if they so desire. Canada has said we'll send four. Um, yeah, and there's also talk. I understand talks are underway about uh, missile systems for Ukraine and fighter planes to provide uh, air cover for the tanks. So 2023 could be a very different look on the battlefield in uh, in Ukraine. And we know the Russians have not been doing well, they've been doing pretty poorly. The, the Ukrainian military has been pushing them around. So what the Russians have been doing in, in reply is, of course, to fire missiles at civilians. Tells you all you need to know about uh, Adolf Putin, doesn't it? Ambassador Alexander Sherba joins us, former Ukraine ambassador to Austria and member of the Ukraine diplomatic mission to the United States. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness. Uh, ambassador, how are you today? I'm very good, Roy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. And I hope that 2023 turns out to be the year that your military, with the uh, with the materials that have been sent uh, from uh, the West and are going to be sent to the West, uh, to, from, from the West, will be able to push the Russians back to their border. Are you hopeful that can be done this year? Absolutely. Very hopeful. Uh, I can't say that I'm uh, certain 100% because... Uh, Putin is not uh, sitting on his uh, hands either. Uh, so we have uh, an enormous uh, army, you know, uh, on the other side uh, forming. But other than that, you know, uh, Russian army isn't a um, uh, pumpkin that can turn into a golden carriage uh, overnight. Uh, it, all it can do just getting bigger and bigger. But in the end, it's just a pump, pumpkin. We are not really um, as afraid uh, of them as we were in the beginning of this war. And, of course, the fact that we are receiving these modern tanks, that we will receive these modern tanks, that it looks more and more likely that uh, fighter jets will be coming from the West 
uh, it just gives us uh, more certainty, of course. So is it your understanding that the fighter jets will be handed to the Ukrainian military and your pilots will fly them, or will they be flown by, by NATO pilots? Because that would change the whole situation. Well, uh, the um, news today was that uh, Ukrainian pilots are already already uh, being trained uh, for, you know, flying uh, F-16 um, fighter jets. So it will be, it will be, it's my understanding, it will be Ukrainian pilots and uh, they will be as skilled and, uh, and as successful as uh, other Ukrainian soldiers. Yeah. yeah, I was telling a friend yesterday that uh, if the announcement is made that the fighter planes will be handed to Ukraine or may be handed to Ukraine, I said, if that, that announcement is made, that means the training's been taking place for months already. They're not going to make that announcement unless you already have a significant number of pilots that are trained on the F-16. Um, what's the greatest challenge of dealing with the Russians? I mean, you, were, you grew up in the, in the Soviet Union. Uh, what's the greatest challenge of dealing with the Russians and dealing with that maniac in the Kremlin? Oh, the greatest challenge is uh, that uh, we all grew up in the Soviet Union on uh, basically dreaming to uh, be like the heroes of the World War II who, who, who broke Hitler's neck. You know, I, as a child, as a boy, I dreamed that it, there would be a war and uh, uh, I would uh, die heroically and someone would uh, make a movie about me and everybody in the movie theater will cry about that. They will cry watching. Um, so it's just childish, you know, but, and I grew up and I, and reality changed and I dreamt of other things, of course, but I'm looking at these Russian men who are heading towards to front to the front. And it feels like they got stuck in this late 1980s, nineties. Uh, they were, told that uh, it's some kind of, you know, neo-Nazis uh, they are facing and they have to give their lives uh, for uh, their uh, country. And many of them just do without, you know, really thinking it through. And what's even more surprising and insane, that many Ukrainian, uh, many Russian mothers send their sons enthusiastically uh, just based on, you know, this idea that... Uh, uh, die in a heroical death, and they think it's a heroical death to, to die fighting Ukraine, um, is the best thing that can happen to them. Plus, of course, there are, uh, there are some, you know, uh, financial benefits they will receive. It's a very insane, crazy, in many ways, inhumane situation, inhumane thinking. And unfortunately, you know, Russia fell into this rabbit's hole, and it's crazy to see it. Yeah, and we know what the Russian military has done, as far as war crimes are concerned, uh, to the Ukrainian civ civilian population in, in cities that they and areas they controlled. Yeah. Once they lost and control. They, and they, they say those were Nazis. Uh, they, they look at us, uh, at uh, the people with the same first and last names, uh, people who have Russian books on their book shelters, and they say... Those are Nazis. We are allowed to kill them, rape them, uh, you know, uh, loot their homes. It's, it's, it's insane. It is insane. Those battle tanks. Now, I've heard a number that up to 200 eventually will be in Ukraine. How much of a difference to your military 
will those tanks make? And I just go back to February 24th of last year when the invasion began. And so many knowledgeable people said, well, Ukraine will hold out for maybe 72 hours and then they'll lose Kiev and it'll be over. Here we are beginning, well, we're in the second calendar year and about to begin the second actual year of war. How much of a difference are those tanks going to make in the overall equation? Well, uh, having the tanks uh, is having the possibility to push uh, Russians back and uh, to liberate our country, to go in the offensive, so to say. So we have what it takes to be successful in defensive. We have what it takes to uh, uh, make uh, very successful advances uh, using the factor of surprise, like we did uh, in September last year, or uh, using um, just the situation that was uh, uh, going our way, like we did in Kherson, just because we we managed to uh, uh, blow up that uh, Crimean Crimea bridge and uh, blow up all, all the you know uh, supply lines of the Russian army, and they had no other way but uh, just just to withdraw from Kherson. But right now. Uh, it will be, they will be prepared, Russians will be prepared, and very well prepared. And uh, the fact of surprise, maybe it will, will play a role, but not such a role as it was in September. So it will be a bigger battle, a bloodier battle, a battle where we need uh, more manpower, uh, which, which, uh, which, which, which we have, and more people are heading, uh, enlisting with army. And uh, things like uh, these modern tanks, because this is what you need to, uh, when 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 you, when you go ahead and not not just uh, hold your ground. And we hear that uh, these tanks. Someone even leaked uh, the number uh, that eventually it will be uh, 360 uh, tanks. All over, at, at least this is what what countries pledged altogether to give to Ukraine. That at some point during um, uh, May, June, uh, we will we will have these tanks, but we have we have to fight this war right now. And uh, uh, quite frankly, Ukraine expects this uh, offensive uh, uh, somewhere during uh, March, April. And um, this is uh, th the question is whether we can do it uh, uh, when whether we can wait till May or not. Uh, I hope that. Uh, we have enough uh, uh, brains and uh, uh, manpower and uh, and and uh, uh, military equipment uh, to surprise Russians again and uh, to 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 do to strike where they don't expect. Uh, but again, just right now, it's uh, as they say in chess, Zugzwang. So everybody is just uh, locked uh, in these kinds of situation right now and bogged down both Russia and Ukraine. I hope uh, the situation will change in our favor very soon. Yeah. And people of Ukraine, as you've so said to us in the past, the people of Ukraine are committed to this, to this fight uh, to, to the end because you're defending your land, you're defending your country, you're defending your homes, you're defending your people. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's an entirely different equation. And we remember the Russians in Afghanistan in the early uh, 1980s, mid-1980s. They did not fare as well as they thought they would, and they were chased out of Afghanistan by the Mujahideen. So the Russians do not have the Superman status that they like to think they have. Let me ask you about Canada, Ambassador. What is, uh, what's the response, what's the sense about the contributions Canada has made to Ukraine? Well, you give me a chance to do what I, what I should have done. First of all, I should have thanked 
the West in general and Canada in particular uh, for uh, the help that is provided. We know that uh, uh, this help is paid by uh, your taxes and we do appreciate it. But also the voices and the, uh, the voices of support on social media everywhere. And uh, of course, you know, uh, giving help to Ukrainian refugees all over the world is also very, very much appreciated. Uh, I know uh, Canada is uh, uh, second largest uh, country territorially. Uh, and uh, for Ukrainians, it's a very, very special country, of course, because so many Ukrainian um, Canadian, uh, Ukrainians uh, live there, ethnic Ukrainians. But uh, I understand that uh, the population uh, can be compared to the United States. Uh, so we don't expect that level of uh, um, military uh, support that uh, we are receiving from there, from Canada. Uh, but still, four tanks is four tanks, and uh, it's it's important, and it's not the only thing that is being provided. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're more than welcome. And we have the uh, armored personnel carriers, and there's that $400 million missile system that this country is purchasing from yeah. the United States, right? Now, speaking of the United States, some politicians on the conservative side of the spectrum from the Republican Party have been arguing against continuing to supply Ukraine with arms unless there is a proper accounting of where all the equipment goes. How, how much concern is there in Ukraine about that uh, attitude by some of the politicians in the American Congress? Well, I think uh, we have nothing to hide. Quite frankly, when uh, we discuss this here in Ukraine, I, I kept saying, let them come and see. And the biggest proof that uh, we are using uh, these weapons and the help provided accordingly is uh, the uh, beating uh, of Russians on the uh, you know uh, battlefield. So um, and today uh, I, I read in the news that the a group of uh, American auditors uh, visited Kiev. Uh, they uh, met with. Uh, uh, representatives of Ukrainian government. Uh, so uh, I think it's a very natural and normal and uh, good thing. Uh, of course, when I listen to uh, what uh, Tucker Carlson had, has to say or Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene, it just uh, it horrifies me just uh, how, how evil people can be, you know, when just not feeling the pain of, of a country that was attacked in most brutal manner and just talking about money, 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 you know. Um, I understand that the money is significant and huge, but the cost of Ukraine failing would be uh, so much more significant. And the um, proof that Ukraine is uh, using uh, the money uh, and the help provided accordingly is there. So uh, it just, it's very, very sad, but thank God that the absolute majority of the Republican Party are uh, with Ukraine and supporting Ukraine, and we are, we are thankful for that. All right, the mass shootings, they continue unabated in the United States, some 40 already in 2023, and we're not fully through January yet. Uh, Christian Heine joins us, Vice President of Policy and Programs at Brady United. That's United Against Gun Violence. It's one of the most influential national anti-gun violence, anti-crime organizations in the United States. Now, you may recall 
and if you were around in the 80s, you do. Uh, Jim Brady uh, was a gun owner and President Ronald Reagan's press secretary and survived a gunshot to his head during an assassination attempt on President Reagan. Mr. Brady and his wife Sarah worked with Republicans and Democrats to pass the bipartisan Brady Bill, which ensured background checks were carried out on gun sales in the United States. Today, Brady continues to work with gun owners and non-gun owners to end America's gun violence epidemic. So Christian Hind, Hind, rather, joins us, Vice President of Policy and Programs at Brady United. Mr. Heine's own family has been impacted by gun violence. On Memorial Day 2005, his mother was killed while his father survived multiple gunshots by a man with a history of violence. Christian, thank you very much for joining us, and condolences on your loss under such terrible circumstances. Thank you so much for, for having me today. Thank you for uh, having this conversation, and, and I really appreciate uh, uh, you know those condolences. I think you know for so many of us in this work, it's what fuels us to prevent families from knowing the the pain and the trauma that we continue to live through because of uh, the way that gun violence has impacted our lives. So thank you very much for having me. You're you're more than welcome. 40, um, 40 cases of mass shootings already in 2023 in the United States. Is the issue about proliferation of guns in the U.S., or is it about people who have the right to purchase and carry a firearm without any or with very little background information required? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's probably the most important question, right? What? Why is it that uh, America experiences gun violence in a way that no other industrialized country um, experiences or, or, frankly, accepts? Um, uh, and, and the answer is the unfettered access to weapons that uh, makes you, America a unique place to live. Um, you know, when, when our shooting happened to us, we started peeling back the layers of the onion, trying to understand how is it that uh, my parents could be shot in, in the kind of incident where they where they were. And, and what we found was our loop, the, the loopholes that we have in our legal code that allow people to, to purchase weapons, people who are at risk of dangerous behavior, we just don't do anything to prevent that from happening. So uh, until we do, no community in this country can, can feel safe from the scourge of gun violence until we do something proactive about that. Yeah, you have on uh, on your website, there are some really compelling statistics when it comes to the commission of crimes with a gun. Statistics on daily gun violence in America. Every day, 321 people are shot in the United States. Among those, 111 people are shot and killed. 210 survive gunshot injuries. 95 are intentionally shot by someone else and survive. 42 are murdered, 65 die from gun suicide, 10 survive an attempted gun suicide, one is killed unintentionally, 90 are shot unintentionally and survive, one is killed by legal intervention, and it goes on and it goes on. Um, how do you put those statistics to use? How do you, how do you put that to use? Um, and and I, I'm going to pull the Second Amendment, I guess, into, the, into this question Christian, where does the Second Amendment fit, and what does the Second Amendment permit? Right. Um, well, I mean, I think the the statistics that you mentioned are are really important. I think, and and not only is it horrific to think of the level to which people are killed with guns, um, but also the fact that two to three times as many are are injured uh, with firearms every single day and have to live 
with those injuries that sometimes go on to live long lives and ultimately succumb to those wounds. You know, Jim Brady is a perfect example of someone who, uh, you know, after fighting hard for, for gun violence prevention and, and uh, working over the course of many years to have uh, incredible strides so families don't have to know what, what he had been through, uh, his death was ultimately uh, ruled a homicide. Um, and, and, you know, we have a, a country full of, of a generation of people who are, who are living like this. I, you know, and then I'll just say it's important to quantify the, the macro uh, impact, but we also need to think about what gun violence looks like to every community. You know, for me, gun violence isn't necessarily the fact that more than 100, you know, thousand people are, are going to be impacted uh, this next year by guns. It's, it's the fact that on my wedding day, my mom wasn't there. Uh, my wife will never have the opportunity to meet her. She'll never know the joys of being a grandmother um, because a man with a history of violence had access to that weapon. So, uh, you know, I think in terms of how do we think about it, we need to think about how the individuals uh, are, are impacted and those around them. Um, and, and lastly, you know, nothing that we're advocating for here is at odds with the Second Amendment. Um, you know, the Second Amendment itself is, you know, the right, it, it's a singular right, a right to bear arms. Um, there's a lot of history around the Second Amendment, but at the end of the day, a universal background check requiring background checks on all gun sales uh, is, is not at odds with that uh, philosophy of a of the Second Amendment um, or the the legal history, if you you know a ban on uh, assault weapons, you know weapons that are inherently more dangerous because of tactical features um, that were designed for warfare, uh, there is no constitutional protection for civilian access to these weapons. So if you start to really talk about you know how do we prevent domestic abusers from getting access to guns, or how do we prevent firearm suicide by limiting access to individuals in crisis, what we find is that more and more and more people on both sides of the aisle, gun owners and non-gun owners alike, agree overwhelmingly on all of these issues, and, and we just got to get them passed. You're not trying to disarm Americans. You just said that. The Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. You, uh, you want to have universal background checks before someone is permitted to uh, purchase a firearm. Specific kind of firearm or any, any kind of firearm? Well, we need we need background checks when people are purchasing firearms in general. I, mean, right. I think we talk about the unique ability for assault weapons to um, uh, just decimate uh, a, a community and, and, and all the places where these shootings are taking place because of that increased lethality. You know, it makes these mass casualty shootings just so much more horrific. Um, but we also have to recognize the fact that handguns themselves and access to handguns are are what drives the the now more than 40,000 people. In 2021, we just got new CDC data that, that told us that uh, 48,830 people in the U.S., uh, you know, were killed by firearms in, in 2021. I mean, these are horrific and staggering numbers and, and, and the large part of them are handguns uh, and, 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 and a simple background check on average, more than 90% of the time, it takes less than two minutes. Um, these aren't complicated solutions. Um, the problem is, is that if they're not uniformly uh, put into uh, the code, uh, then we can't have the kind of meaningful impact we need to have for, for what is really a horrific public health epidemic. 
Is this a political issue in the United States primarily, or, or not so much? In this country, there's now um, an effort underway. The government says it's not happening. Gun owners say it is. The, the government is trying to disarm, take away uh, rifles and shotguns from uh, from licensed Canadian gun owners who have to satisfy the state in order to get a license. You have to pass, a, have, first of all, you, they do a background check on you and you have to provide all sorts of personal information, professional information as well. And then you have to pass a test and you have to, the pass mark is 80% and it's not simple. I've done it. Um, so we, we approach things very differently in Canada and there is a feeling here that it's a political issue. Is it a political issue in the United States or not? I think that's that's exactly right, and I and I would even go as far as to say that it's 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 a political issue because it's such a small minority of people that are obstructing the kind of progress that would save lives. I mean, once again, I I work with and and, and friends with and and myself uh, enjoy going out target shooting and and clay shooting and and. You know, there is a number of gun owners that that are a part of this and and ultimately that are fighting and working every day for the same solutions that that I am. At the end of the day, what's what's preventing uh, the kind of progress that we need is a is a very small number of people that know how to utilize uh, the the democratic structures and and to utilize things like the procedural filibuster, a, a tool that allows. Uh, a, a small minority of, of senators to ensure that the kinds of policies that it, that has a majority support, even in the Senate, uh, can't even be brought to the floor for a vote. So, you know, I think that there is misinformation that's out there. Um, you know, that 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 misidentifies and lies about what the what the bills themselves would do or accomplish. But most Americans overall, they get this issue. They support it. And, and it's special interest groups that are utilizing uh, these structures to prevent the kind of progress that would that would create the change we need. Yeah, and you've had 40, let's go back to that, 40 mass shootings already in the United States in the first 29 days of the year, first 29 days of January. How far do you think you can go, uh, Christian, in, to achieve and accomplish what you're attempting to achieve and accomplish? Because you're not looking to take people's firearms away from them. You want a universal background check. And do you want certain firearms not to be available to the general public as well? Is that an objective? I think that the overall objective around um, the specific uh, types of weapons that are designed to have increased lethality is additional regulation, right? In, the, in, the, in this country, for instance, um, there is something called the National Firearms Act where uh, and, and as well as there has been a ban on fully automatic weapons um, for, uh, you know, uh, almost 100 years now at this point. It was, it was resulting from a horrific massacre that happened on Valentine's Day um, uh, and, and on the heels of, of uh, the popularity use of, of uh, weapons like the Tommy gun. Um, and, and eventually when the National Firearms Act was passed, these weapons had additional regulations where you have to register them, you have to be fingerprinted, you have to uh, do a host of, of additional screening. Um, and uh, because of this additional regulation, these weapons are not used in the shootings that we see day in and day out. I think that there is likely a, a common ground. I think we have to be very mindful about what uh, kinds of weapons 
civilians can access, the way that we have uh, as a country uh, since our initial founding. So um, there is particular uh, uh, aspects to, to firearms uh, ownership that, that we want to talk about, but it usually has to do with um, uh, regulation overall. Uh, and then your broader question, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but at some point we need to address gun violence in all of its forms, right? The, the kinds of staggering numbers that you mentioned earlier, uh, it is telling the story of a horrific public health epidemic. And, and that is not a easy, there's not a single solution for, for what we're facing. Uh, what it actually is is a really complex, comprehensive solution that we're in need of where we're addressing gun violence in all of its forms to deal with, uh, you know, firearm suicide. We have to have policies that specifically deal with firearm suicide. For domestic violence uh, homicides, we have to have policies that protect uh, victims of domestic violence and that are, that are targeted and, and, and very intentional. Uh, for community violence, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, we have got to really address those in ways that the research shows will have an impact in the types of violence. And, and, and so we, we, there's a number of things that we need to do in order to meaningfully address the epidemic that we have today. So, so, so how does the American public respond to the news, to the information, that there have been 40 mass shootings in the first 29 days of 2023? How does the American public react and respond to that? Look, I think the American people are fed up. I, and, and, and once again, I don't, I don't think that that's just one party that is uh, frustrated and, and horrified and, and upset. I think that Americans of all walks of life and, and all political affiliations, whether or not they own a gun or otherwise, are horrified with the state of affairs with gun violence in America, which is why um, even in this last Congress, and there was such a, a, a meaningful step forward in in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is one of the you know more significant bills that Congress has passed, and and while it's still minor in the steps that um, it took, this is a bill that the NRA opposed. This is a bill that the NSSF opposed, and still uh, you had a number of Republicans voting for policies that they have obstructed for 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 many years. Republican leadership in in the U.S. Senate, to be specific, that is because constituents were calling outrage. That's because. Republicans and gun owners in district were calling those senators and saying, you have got to do something. And as a result, they were able to do something and, and, and they were able to find out this guy didn't fall. Um, lives are going to be saved because of that policy and, and, and they are still, you know, they're here in Washington doing their job. So my hope is, is that there's long-term hope on the horizon uh, to accomplish more, uh, to pass more significant policies so that we can continue this progress and, and hopefully one day, um, I don't have to do this work because it's 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 not work that that I want to be have to do my whole life. Yeah, we have thirty seconds. Uh, who has the final say on gun laws? Is it federal or state authorities? Look, the the federal government sets the the floor, and and the states can go beyond that. But as we saw in California, a state where you're forty percent less likely to be shot because of all the work they've done. Uh, they're still beholden to the weakest gun laws near them. So they need to work together, um, but the federal government needs to raise that, that, that minimum. There's a lot of talk about Canada, about uh, how we are. We have uh, Saskatchewan with the, the Saskatchewan First Act. We have the uh, Alberta Sovereignty Act. We have, well, let me just play you again something that we played yesterday. It's very brief, but uh, 
Premier Blaine Higgs of New Brunswick was on this program. I think it was three or four years ago. And the Premier had just attended his very first um, meeting with his fellow Premiers and the Prime Minister. And this is what he came away with. It makes you wonder if if, if Canada is a nation or a notion. It makes you wonder if Canada is a nation or a notion. Premier Higgs of New Brunswick. Tom Caldwell is the chairman of Caldwell Securities in Toronto with the seats on the New York Stock Exchange and the TSX. And Mr. Caldwell, in an audiovisual presentation on the Caldwell Securities website, raises a lot of questions about this country of ours and who we are, what we are, who's leading us, how they're leading us, and uh, how we've changed in Canada. And uh, Tom, thank you uh, for coming on. How are you doing? All good in your world? Uh, sure, I have my quote of good things and bad things. I'm in the sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> the sweet spot. May it forever show up. <laughs> Tom, you, you start, and it's a very it's a very challenging piece, the uh, Q&A that you did. And, and it made me think, and it's going to make anyone really think, who, who watches it and listens to it. But let's start with, uh, with, with the opening point that you make. And you ask the question whether today Canada remains a country that we are proud of. Could you start with that, please? Well, I, I can only start with it from a personal perspective. I am very proud to be a Canadian. I'm proud of our country. I'm proud of our people. I'm proud of our history. I'm proud of our intentions. You know, we've always tried to do the right thing and listen, we are human beings, and everybody makes mistakes, and sometimes they're pretty cataclysmic. But all that notwithstanding, motivation, intent, trying to help out, being acceptant of people, being acceptant of, of ideas, that's what Canada has been built on. And we're, I think we're going down a quite a different road now uh, in several components. First off, when you don't have leadership, whether it be in a corporation or a country, you have fragmentation. Now, the, the interesting part of fragmentation is, is that you have pressure groups, you have interest groups really taking over the agenda. Uh, sadly, at the, at the federal government level, it's a one-trick pony, uh, the fixation on climate change. And yes, we have to do stuff, but it, the fixation is everything relates to that. And, and that's what's called an ideologue. When you, when you have an idea that everybody else must conform to. And that's what we're seeing in Canada, an increasing intrusion of governments and pressure interest groups in our life. For example, you know, there's much, I hear these, these cliches, these phrases, oh, a safe place or diversity. You know, you hear those phrases all the time, but let me just offer this thought. There is no safe place for diversity of thought or ideas or even debate. And that's dangerous because what in that world People are attacked, not their ideas. And, and increasingly we see this. Um, we are forced to think and say what many of us just simply don't believe. It's almost like we have these new secular religions and they demand total adherence. The West, the success of the West has been based on individual thinking, initiative, innovation, and that freedom of thought, freedom of discussion um, has to be preserved and, and nurtured. Uh, so I think we've got away from that. We, we don't have a vision. We, we even have a government that's debased our pride in our country to some degree. Uh, 
somebody, I heard a great quote, uh, somebody said, there are only two kinds of Canadians, those who are embarrassed by the Prime Minister and those who aren't. And I'm not laying all of this on his doorstep, but he is weak, that's quite clear. And at, at, he does, you know, miss the plot. I mean, I'll give you an example, that, that truck uh, protest. You know, typically a leader, and it just started peacefully, and it was generally peaceful. A leader would come out and say, let's meet and let's talk about it, and, as opposed to turning on them, um, seizing bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, you, in, instead of listening, these are Canadians. These are good Canadians, patriotic, care about our country, and, and you know, government should at least be open. We are a democracy, so we're forgetting these things. So we're imposing ideas. We're imposing thought, we're imposing thought process. We're imposing adherence to ideologues, if you will. So you would have... That's what creates in life, and that's the thing that concerns me. Yeah, you would have uh, believed that Mr. Trudeau should have gone and uh, and met with the truckers, and if uh, he had specific objections, and he did, to what they were doing, then raise it and deal with it. And at some point, at some point, though, the prime minister, um, Tom, any prime minister has to say, well, this is the end of the discussion. But if you don't start the discussion... Absolutely. Then you have a then you have what you what you have. Do, when you said there's sorry, you and I are semi-normal. If we were in that role in that protest, you or I, I know this, I know enough about you, would go out to the front lawn and say, "Listen, pick five of your guys, their leaders, whoever they happen to be. Come on over to the office tomorrow. We'll get some coffee and Tim Hortons, and we're going to sit around for half a day and discuss what your concerns are and what what is doable, etc." Mm-hmm. But at least that would diffuse it, just to be heard. I run a company, a public company. When I have an irritated shareholder. I get on the phone and I call them back and I talk to them. And even if we can't agree, uh, there is the respect that I got on the phone and called them back and we discussed their concerns. And that's important. That's what democracy is. When you say there is uh, no diversity of, uh, of thought, if, if, I understood, if I understood correctly what you said, you're talking uh, about the post-secondary world, like academia, yes? You know, they used to have tenure, and so professors could come up with controversial ideas and not be threatened by their jobs. Mm-hmm. But, but again, let's just take climate change. I'm not to pick on that because there's a whole bunch of other things you can do. But suppose you are a professor at a university and you question the science of climate change. Not to get involved in the debate of climate change. If you question the science, you will lose your job and you will not work in academia again. Uh, you had a, a, a nurse practitioner uh, in London recently uh, pointing out that he, she was using biology, and she said basically biologically, you're either male or female. Um, it's binary. Uh, she lost her job. She's not going to work again in any professional thing in, in hospitals. And that's what I mean. People are destroyed. This is how totalitarianism starts. It starts with a big lie, and the more you tell it, it becomes the truth. And and uh, Goebbels uh, did that. Mao Zedong did that. They not they understand that game, and we're we're doing the same thing again to our people. Do you uh, do you think that people? And I'm just asking for your your view here. Do you think that people are comfortable with they um, with following the positions that are put forward by by governments and by um, associations and by uh, messengers who have a specific interest in a specific issue. I think people are comfortable with that, or do you think people are in, in, sufficiently engaged to say, "Well, let's uh, let's talk about this"? Because I don't hear a lot of that. Let's talk about it. No, you're, you're not. You're not hearing. And, and you know what? It's like when I grew up Eastern Europe. You know, when, when we were under the communists, people would say something for public consumption, but they would think something totally differently. And that's where we're at. 
we'll say stuff and go along with it, and everybody's cringing internally and saying, I disagree with that. And, and, and that happens often, far more often than you think. Now, I, listen, I can't speak for all Canadians, but I can speak for myself and some of the people that I chat with. And I talk to a pretty big cross-section of people. They're not all, <laughs> they're not all in the investment business, mercifully. Uh, but basically, we're forced to mouth things that we don't buy into. And, and that's morally wrong, and that's highly dangerous. And that's how totalitarianism really gets a foot in the door. Tom Caldwell, chairman of Caldwell Securities, is with us. And we're talking uh, with Tom about the AV presentation, which is on, I don't even know if you call that anymore. Is that what it's called, Tom? Is it still an AV? Um, the, the Insights video on our website? Yeah, still an audio. It's just called Insights. It's on Caldwell Securities, okay. LTT's website, or Urbana's website. Okay. Uh, and you and you delve into what this country's about in 2023 and whether we're still proud of, of Canada and what the politicians are up to and what actually preoccupies them. And uh, I, I think you clearly state that the preoccupation is gaining votes and often through photo opportunities. So what is your assessment of the, quote, leadership that we have in this country? Well, I, I think everyone is it's starting to dawn on people that we just do not have effective leadership. It, it's it's one thing to have an idea and try to jam it down everyone's throat, whether that be any any. I mean, whether it be the war on cars in Toronto, which is a war on business. People aren't coming downtown, and oh by the way, the subways are totally safe. So we're told by our mayor. Um, the, the 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 it's it's not listening to the people. It's not saying it's like I've got this idea and I'm going to make sure everybody fits into it. And that's what the ideologue does. The problem is you have that on one hand, yet on the other hand. You have short-termism. Okay, I'm going to spend some money. I, I don't mean to say this. Say in Hamilton, okay, we're going to spend X billions dollars in the airport. We, it's like throw money all around a place to buy votes. It's, there's no macro view of where do we see Canada fitting in the world stage? What are the industries we want to promote and develop? Uh, what can we do with what we have in terms of energy, raw materials, etc., where we're really falling behind? How can we participate in world security? Because if you're not playing in that game at all, no other country will even consider you, and, and Canada's not. And that. So what I'm suggesting is, number one, the parties have to pick leaders who are leaders. And obviously the job is to get elected. But then you have to ask yourself, why? How are we going to make the country better? And it doesn't mean it has to fit into your specific idea. But I think our politicians have to lead, have to forget about short-termism and buying votes and just spending money all over the countryside. Ask Canadians to sacrifice to build a better country, and we'll do it. You know, we've seen that time and time and yes, time again throughout our great history. But there's none of that. It's, it's, it's like um, the, the cargo god arriving saying, okay, I've got some goodies now. I'm going to send you that and, and make sure you vote for us. And, and, and decisions like the fighter plane is put off a decade, and we missed all the, the uh, uh, construction opportunities of that aircraft because we, we had to pay a, a cancellation fee. That, it's not making decisions for the right reason, or making decisions for purely political purposes. I know politicians, they are politicians, they are what they are, but they've got to start thinking in a bigger picture, what's right for Canada? And I think that's what we're missing. And I think that's dawning on people, whether it be, you know, how many tanks can we send to the Ukraine? Well, we might find four that work. You know, that, that's embarrassing side of things. So bigger picture thinking, longer term thinking, forget about running out and buying votes with every pressure interest group. A regional group that comes across your table and says, okay, here's some money, uh, as long as you vote for us. That's, that's just not how you build a country. Mm -hmm. So 
If we can step outside our borders for just a moment, we talked about inside Canada, but if we step outside our borders and your specialty, your expertise is um, in investments and um, securities, Caldwell Securities, uh, how are we seen outside our borders? How is Canada viewed well, internationally? It's, it's, it's not seen as a poor investment destination, which it is, because we can't seem to get any kind of big projects going in this country because either regional or our, our political groups oppose it. You can't get anything done in Canada. We can't seem to make serious decisions. So in terms of an investment destination, we're not a factor. But the point is, we're not considered as anything. We're not even on the radar screen. I mean, if you look at the security agreements between uh, the United States and Australia and, and, and Britain, Canada's not included. That's in right. This. So my point is, we're not even considered. The sad part and the embarrassing part is when we go to international conferences, our prime minister is running around just trying to get photo opportunities so he shows well back here. Mm-hmm. But we are not considered a factor. And that's, that's not what we're about. Canada has always been a major force for peace, uh, for cooperation, for getting along, and, and we've sacrificed in that regard. So we have to come up and be in the game. And that means spending money on stuff that it doesn't necessarily mean a vote buyer, whether it be defense or, or, or whatever, because we live in a far more dangerous world now than, than we have done in the last you know, 15, 20 years. So we are not seen as serious in any level. You have, you have uh, for example, Germany and Japan saying we want to have liquid natural gas. Mm-hmm. And you know, our prime minister said, well, no, we're, we're going to give you hydrogen in a couple of years. And they just I mean, Schroeder, Chancellor Schroeder, when he left, you could see the photographs. He was just yeah, looking, we've talked about that. Yeah. looking at the prime minister saying, what is this guy about? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is the world we live in. We're not seen as a reliable ally, trading partner, safe destination for anything, because it's, 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 it's populism at its very, very worst. The conversation the black fathers in the United States have with their sons over interaction with the United States police. Now, in the wake of the brutal beating by five Memphis police officers on Tyree Nichols, which resulted in the death of Mr. Nichols, and the firing of the five officers who also face murder charges, the issue of uh, the conversation we're having now is going to be black fathers have a conversation with their sons over how to engage U.S. police in the event the sons are faced with direct police scrutiny. and. Um, I speak to a black father about that conversation he had with his son, a conversation this father first shared with me on this program a number of years ago. My guest is Ron Miller. Mr. Miller has become a friend of mine over the years, vice president for online learning at Southwest Baptist University, former associate dean and professor at Liberty University, and president of the No Walls Ministry in Virginia. Ron served in the United States Air Force and leads the ronsreflections.net website. Ron, it's good to talk to you again. It's been far too long. We talked this morning, but I was really looking forward to this conversation because of the the importance of what we're going to talk about, just to hear your voice, too. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's good to be back. Ron, what, what what was your reaction? And then I'll ask you as well for your family's reaction, your son's reaction, uh, and, and responds to the Memphis beating of Mr. Nichols by five city police officer 
Um, a black man beaten to death by five black officers. That's if they're found guilty of murder at the trial. But that's certainly been brought up. What was your what's your reaction to that? Well, as with a lot of people, the reaction was just one of being sickened by the fact that we're going through this yet again. Um, I am a, I am a friend of law enforcement. My brother is in law enforcement. But you seem to have this culture in places. And the thing that's really uh, telling about this is that it doesn't matter the race of the officers. It just seems like there is a culture of violence that seems to pervade these interactions. And you wonder what happens in those situations. Is it a disregard for the individual uh, himself or, or herself? Uh, you, just, you just wonder, what is it that causes them to, to break and suddenly fail to acknowledge that this is a human being and that they, being in a position of power and authority, need to exercise that authority with uh, integrity? Yeah, it's shocking. It's shocking to you. And I, I saw as much as I could stand in that, of that, uh, that camera, that footage, are encounters with police in the United States becoming more violent and confrontational? Is there a sense? Yeah, I don't know if there's a statistic, but we're not talking stats here. But do you have a sense? Is there a sense that the encounters with police in the U.S. are becoming more violent? Well, it's interesting because I think a lot has to do with um, the way these encounters occur in the first place. Um we try to teach people at the collegiate level who are taking criminal justice the importance of de-escalation, the importance of facing these situations and doing everything in their power to bring the situation to a safe conclusion for all concerned. What you have a lot of times are people who come into these situations very agitated, very, uh, I guess, assuming of the worst and then it just blows up from there. You talk about statistics, and everybody wants to use statistics, and you're right, it can't always be about statistics. Sometimes it's got to be about just the pervasive culture because this is something that happens multiple times. You've got to take a look at it and say, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. But there were some studies done that suggested that there were higher incidences of violence directed toward people of color by the police, and it does suggest that there might be less regard in those situations. And I know that's a controversial thing to say, but, you know, I remind people that uh, a lot of the things that we saw in the history books about the civil rights movement, the, the, the ferocity with which people fought to maintain the status quo, and the fact that law enforcement was often a vehicle that they used to try and hold on to the status quo, it was it was in our lifetimes, at least my lifetime. I know I'm old, mine too. but it was it was only a little more than fifty years ago mm. that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. So to think that those kinds of attitudes disappeared overnight is not realistic. Yeah, I remember. And Sorry, so even with my optimism about the progress we've made, I've always been very clear uh, to my children, and particularly my son, that it's very important for them to conduct themselves. And as, um, I guess, cooperative and almost a, a subservient manner in order to protect themselves. So let's uh, follow up on that a bit. Um, 
conversation black fathers have with their sons about how to engage police. If there's a traffic stop, for example, and you're confronted with a police officer, maybe more than one, and they're challenging you, um, what did you what did you say to your son about this issue? And is this something that black fathers will routinely do at some point in their son's development, have that conversation with them? First of all, I think it's right. The talk, as we call it, does happen uh, in the black community. And for my, in my case, it was spurred by the fact that my son made a comment about being out in public and that um, sometimes people will look at him and it's not a very favorable look because he's a, he's a quiet kid, but he's, he's, he's big. Uh, and to some people he might seem menacing. Um, and being biracial, it's, uh, it's not readily, not readily apparent, but they must know because they give him this look and all of that. And so I said, Hmm, that's interesting. And that's what kind of spurred me to say, you know, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you are stopped by the police or you're encountered by the police, you know, you know, always do what they ask and make sure your hands are visible to them at all times and move very slowly and deliberately when asked to move. Um, and just follow the directions because you don't want the situation to escalate. And he took that advice to heart, has not had to have any issues like that, thank God. But um, now he knows that that is something that uh, he has in his toolkit. And when the time comes uh, and he has children, they re- he recently married. So hopefully that's not too far away. Um, I hope that by the time they're old enough, uh, they won't have to have that talk anymore. How does it um, make you and other black fathers feel that you have to have that conversation? And it's been uh, made an issue that in Memphis, the police officers were all black. Um, their victim was uh, is black or was black. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's been an issue that's been raised. Uh, I don't know if that actually sh- is, is, should be part of the conversation. Uh, you, you tell me what you think, but how does it, how does it feel to know that you have to make that, have to have that conversation with your son? Well, it just tells me that we have work to do and I'm always about offering ideas for solutions rather than just pointing out problems. And so, as you know, being in higher education, uh, I'm very supportive of the idea of, uh, educating our police officers because we do have empirical evidence that shows that um, when an officer has a college education, they are much more likely to de-escalate situations and they are much more effective in community policing. In other words, being uh, supportive of the community. Uh, we, we know we need law enforcement. As James Madison said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But we need to be able to train them. And then the second thing is we need to look at how we are recruiting people for positions in law enforcement. Now, are we going to uh, uh, recruitment? Are we doing good screening? Are we doing the kinds of things that we need to do in order to ensure that we're not bringing people into the force that may have some troubling tendencies? Um, and that there have been some, there's been some evidence in some of these situations where these violent occurrences were not the first times 
that these people have done it. And to me, that would be a warning flag. The first time it happens, this is a person that needs to be screened, needs to be evaluated. So these are practical things that I think people can do. You know, I'm not one of these people that's going to make the case that law enforcement is not necessary. But I also believe that we need to govern them accordingly because when you have the state-sponsored power to use violence to achieve your ends, that just raises the level of responsibility and accountability you have. Yeah. Um, and so they just have to be able to do something about that. And as to your point about the officers being black, it makes me wonder, is there a culture in policing, regardless of what your background is, that leads you to believe that you can apply that kind of violence in a situation, uh, and it's acceptable. Um, police brutality is police brutality, regardless of who commits it. And as I said just a few minutes ago, they have to be better than that because they have to be more accountable because of the responsibility they've been given. Yeah. So, Ron, a question that I, that I have is uh, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to your son, but you've to told me many things about him over the years. What was his response to what happened in Memphis? I think he was troubled by it. Um, I, almost the resignation, if you will. But here it is again. And it's almost like we take a few steps forward, we go a few years, and then we get this flashpoint and it sets us back to where we were before. I, I often think about the fact that you go back to Rodney King back in mm -hmm. 1992. Yeah. And then it's quiet for a while. And then you have another incident. And it's quiet for a while. You have another incident. And so I think he's been around long enough to have seen this pattern that seems that no matter how quiet it might be, all of a sudden something like this bursts into the national, the national consciousness. And here we are again having this conversation that we've had many times before. And I think resignation would be a good way to describe his, his mindset because, again, it's, it's happened again, and we still don't seem to have figured out uh, how to keep it from happening ever again. What was his reaction to you having that talk with him? Not, I'm assuming you didn't do it in the last couple of days, but when you did, no. when you did have that conversation, what was his response? He's a good kid, and he just responded uh, very positively and basically said he would uh, be very careful and very cautious. Um, he's always been someone uh, who's been respectful of authority, um, uh, whether he was playing sports or in you know, the classroom and all of that. And so I think he saw my advice as being uh, coming from a place of love and concern, and I know that even in a situation where he would be dealing with law enforcement. Even if I had not given him that advice, I can only picture him being respectful and, and uh, of the authority that he was confronted with. I just wanted to be sure that he was thinking of every step, every word, every movement. I just wanted to be assured of that. Yeah. This, this, these situations cannot continue. And I don't know how you stop it, I know I have ideas, but they're just ideas. But they have to stop because they fuel fury and, and, and they have the potential to severely damage society. 
and it just it just cannot continue. But how how Ron how does this stop? I mean, you, you, you when you look at that video, you just it, it just takes your breath away to see the kind of gratuitous violence that was displayed by five police officers to serve and protect by five police officers on one young man who was calling for his mother. He couldn't call the police because they were beating him. He was calling for his mother. Well, aside from the things I mentioned before about better screening and better training uh, leadership, you know, you have to have leadership that emphasizes the community aspect. And I'm a fan of the idea of community policing because it's very difficult for you to commit that kind of violence against someone that you know, if that makes any sense. It does. And one of the things that community policing seeks to do is get them out of the squad cars and away from their desk and into the community that they're serving so that they get to know the people and at the same time they get to know what situations require uh, more of their attention than others. Okay. The other thing too is my understanding is this was a, a unique unit that they formed. Yes, yes. And having been in the military I've often wondered if we are converting too many of our police forces into paramilitary Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 